it felt very uh, Star Wars in that way. The plotline of Paradise Lost is the god is a monarch. Okay, Victor Hugo, you just want to show me how much research you did on Waterloo. Let her participate in this game of the Bachelorette kind of thing that's going on here. Me, I'm always looking for a love triangle. Welcome to Literary Connections, three friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world and we're trying to use books to stay connected. I'm James Earl, just fighting the destiny imposed on me by my monotone voice and trying to start a podcast anyway. And I'm Melissa Hansen, and you can just call me the lady. <laughs> In today's podcast, we're going to be discussing Ray Bearer by Jordan Ifueko. Uh, just before we get started, I want to note that this podcast does not believe in spoilers, so if you have not yet read Ray Bearer, there are spoilers ahead. So James, what happened in this book? Give me a short summary, because it was a very long book. Yeah, and I, I think that this is either I'm going to be able to give a short summary that is entirely insufficient, or a very long summary that will be boring, and you should just read the book. But I'll, I'll go I'll go with the shorter one. Yes. The story is about uh, a young lady named Tari Sai, who is destined to kill the prince of this empire. And uh, she ends up, in classic YA fashion, falling in love with the emperor, or at least in a, a platonic friendship kind of way. She feels for him she loves him in that way and then needs to struggle with the fact that her destiny is to kill the thing that she loves oh rough man rough is there anything i missed that's major um i would say the one thing is like how she gets in that position being in like this fantasy world and she's been tasked with killing the crown prince by her mother who is only known as the lady who the reason she's able to command this of her daughter is that the daughter is like half of the lady and half from an Ebro who is a genie of the lands that they are from. And so the lady is able to basically compel her daughter with one wish and one direction that she cannot disobey. And so that push and pull is both like a family push and pull as well as like a magical push and pull. And I think the family part is also hard because the lady is her family, like biologically her family, the person who sort of raised her. And then she gets placed into this world with the crown prince where she's able to all of a sudden create a new family. And those two senses of family of like birth and then your found family being in conflict with each other. And also you're just magically compelled to kill someone that you really care about, which is kind of rough. I actually think that's a pretty good place to start with this one is the, I mean, okay, there's a trope of found family, but there's also this recurring theme of fighting against one's destiny. Totally. And so in that case, yeah, there's the destiny related to her family where like her family has certain expectations for her. The lady has certain expectations for her that she's uh, assumed to fulfill. But then also there's a magic. But, but I, I saw this appear in a bunch of times in the story as well. So maybe we could just start by talking about some of the other examples of this theme popping up. Yeah, I. it's so interesting. I didn't think of that framing, but it's so important the way that you framed it that way because it is like she is being destined this way and like that magical compulsion from her mother. But we find it at the end that there's basically like two ways you can get out of this destiny that's been given to yourself, this magical compulsion. One is to just do what you've been asked to do. And the other is you actually have to find your own purpose outside of the person who has compelled you for your own destiny. And I think the reason that it didn't resonate with me originally, I was like, oh my gosh, that's such like a cop-out. Like, of course, that's like how she'll find her own destiny. That's the way out of it. She doesn't have to kill the person that she loves. 
But now that you frame it that way, how do you challenge your like assigned destiny versus find your own? I actually really, really like that framing and that turn of events. Yeah, I think it's actually a, a pretty profound statement when uh, when viewed through that lens. Because if your family has a certain perspective of what you should be, or if society has a certain perspective of what you should be, then you sort of take that as the default setting. Like it's your fallback. You're just going to do it. And, and unless you come with an alternative plan and you find like an alternative purpose, then you will find yourself just doing whatever is expected of you or, or however society or your family views you. Yeah, and I think that then that is also what's interesting is she like makes two choices to a certain extent for herself, which is in finding her own family and then finding her own destiny on behalf of saving her found family. And I think the found family vibe is like very interesting. There's two interesting things that I think that are in partnership, but also in conflict with the concept of the ray bearer, which I don't think we've gone into. Basically, the ray bearer is the person who rules this larger confederation of like sub-states and this like empire, the Eretz Empire. And they have been given this special talisman or birthright through the talisman. Basically, every every ray bearer has a council that they develop in childhood, which is basically like the crown prince who will eventually become the ray bearer and emperor himself has to send out a ray of love to another person from another one of the sub-states, and then they have to accept that and love him in return. And this has to happen for every single council member, one from every single sub-state, which I think is like a really interesting look at found family. Like it has to deeply be consensual to a certain extent. And then I think there's also the interesting part of once that is complete, the ray bearer is basically invulnerable, except from the people who he has vowed to love and who have vowed to love him back through that connection, which I think is like an interesting twist. It's like you're becoming invulnerable to the world around you, but by being vulnerable to the people who are close to you, they're the ones who can still hurt you. You're right. I, I think that's uh, that's a really interesting idea because it both allows for the found family to fortify the individual against the outside world. And so there's this concept of support and safety that you can find within your friends and found family. But additionally, you open yourself up to being the most vulnerable there. It is still interesting, though, because I think one aspect of found family is you're like, that can override, again, like these this birthright that you feel. But there is a strong sense of your own birthright in this novel, whether it is your destiny through your parents, where it's like you're going to be compelled to kill someone and you can't say no, or you are destined to become the emperor and you don't have another choice because you are one of the few people who can bear the ray and this sort of like love talisman back and forth. Right. And that's interesting because in, in that way, Dio is also fighting against his destiny because his character, like he enters a story and he's so clearly the innocent trope, the like primrose from the Hunger Games, mm. where just like this person is too good for this world, yes. is too kind and too innocent. Yes. And like that character is often kind of annoying. And I think that Dio isn't quite that. He's just like too cute. <laughs> To be in this world and like that trope does not coincide with emperor there usually is not an overlap between those two things yeah and i think that is actually one of those things where there's a twist at the end there's many twists at the end but one of them is that tarasai the main character is also a ray bearer and that she and dio they have the connection they feel has never actually been romantic which you know me i'm always looking for a love triangle but it's okay i'll accept that there's no love triangle and that they actually complement each other and that actually there's always supposed to be basically an emperor and empress who complement each other 
and that through the patriarchy, they've hidden the fact that there needs to be an empress at all times to balance. And I think there was elements of like Dio's character. I'm like, oh my God, yeah, exactly. You're like a precious cinnamon roll too pure for this world. I was just like, oh gosh, it's kind of almost like a little bit insufferable. Like, how are you so good? <laughs> and then in the balance of the two, and you see when they're like making decisions and they're doing the classes together, you're like, oh, Right. There's like a really mature level of balance and trust that these two people are able to build with each other and then with the, that broader council. Right. They represent that dichotomy of the head and the heart. And she's reversed the, the way that that traditionally works in terms of gender roles where the heart is the like emotional center of the kingdom is Dio and the logical, strategic, I don't know, strong part of the empire is represented by Tari Sai. Um, and I think the other interesting thing for me about birthright is going into the way that the world is sort of set up there's this interesting tension push pull which i think is very um reminiscent of the united states all of these different like sub states sub countries that were united by the original emperor and sort of what parts of your original country state's identity should you be holding precious to yourself and at what point is that in conflict with the nationalist tendencies of the larger empire that they need to survive and i think the book is talking about that um, and that felt very familiar yeah and i think that's confirmed by tari size hollow if this were the previous book we discussed it would be her affinity mm. but her hollow is that she is able to touch objects or people and know their whole histories and so building on what you were saying it promotes this idea of when these stories are all consolidated under a central empire or state or whatever it might be not losing the the culture and stories of history like that that you can organize yourself around a certain story but this novel takes as a central premise that you should question, don't treat that that central story as gospel. Right. I think the element of history, especially where the emperor is trying to like create new histories. Everyone's going to wear new clothes. <laughs> We're going to read new history scrolls, new songs as like a really heavy hand there. But what I thought was also really interesting is the idea of always having to build a us versus them mentality throughout the book, whether it is like your immediate family and then the world around you, if it's your sub-state and the rest of the empire, if it's the entire empire versus Songland. And Songland being like that separate country where um, one of the reasons the empire was able to be built is because every year a certain number of children need to be sacrificed to a bunch of demons in order to make sure that the demons don't run the world and like destroy everything else. And they've entered into this lottery that basically has every single child come from Songland a country that decided not to join the empire. And it's interesting because the lady, or Tarasai's mother, her whole goal was to become the empress, which she felt was the title she deserved by her own birthright. And the way that she was going to get that power is still by being anti-Songland. Being like, yeah, in order to get the love of the council, the love of all the substates, it's like, oh, but I'm still here for you. They're the ones who need to suffer. And always still creating those in-groups, out-groups for loyalty. Yes, that's something I find really interesting because... So much of this book is about questioning the histories or traditions that have been passed down to us. And so, like, the lady questions this, well, there's only one crown prince and there's only one ray bearer. And so she searches for the roots of these things and she's going to overthrow it and she believes that she should be the empress and, and so on. 
But the one thing that is never questioned is that a certain amount of people need to be sacrificed to the underworld. Like, I found that's a really interesting thing because it seems like so many of the other aspects of this culture, right from the beginning, like in the first couple chapters, she comes across a history book that has all this redacted information. And so it's like forces her to question all of the stories that she's been presented with her whole life and to question the traditions and the way the government works and whether or not the people who history has said are perfect or great, whether or not they should be treated as such. But for some reason, like, that people need to be sacrificed. That that was something I struggled with, and, and I, I maybe it'll be solved in the sequels, but I struggled with accepting the fact that people just need to die. Yeah. I mean, I think if there may be what the desire is to, like, add stakes to it, I do think the idea that one ray bearer would be equivalent to 300 children's souls over a countless period of time but what I also think is interesting about the sacrifice to the underworld is they can get out. It's not death, but it's almost death given how few people get out. And so I think that is also what I find is really interesting about the conceit. It's not a full sacrifice. It's like you are putting yourself into a position where you will be tempted by all of these like underworld demons to give up and to fall apart in the underworld and then like die at their hands. Or you will be strong enough to get out. And it's interesting to me that in the deal that those demons are making, that they are willing to accept that. The ability to tempt these people into what they want is what they want. Right. And that to me is an interesting choice. Of like, It's a choice of seduction. Yes. It's not like a guaranteed we're taking their souls. It's a we're going to tempt their souls. And also, it's not like the people that get out of the underworld come out victorious. It seems like they come out pretty damaged. The the couple examples that we get, they are like psychologically traumatized people. Yeah, and it's an interesting thing of like, the ultimate victory is like you're living in somebody's head forever, rent free. <laughs> yeah. It is interesting though. I didn't think about this, but like, yeah, the idea of being in people's heads because that's something that Tarasai, one of her powers is with her hallow, is she's able to give memories, she's able to take memories from other people, but she's also able to manipulate her own memory. That to me was like the most interesting first twist in the book of her way of getting out of having to kill the person that she loves is I'm just going to forget that someone told me to do this and commanded me to do this. And she's able to completely wipe her own memory and what, and to a certain extent, like wipe what is living in her head, what has tortured her in her head in order to move forward. But just in doing that doesn't mean it is resolved, but it is the ability to postpone it is something that she has. You can't erase the actual history of everything, but you can erase its current, like minor, small impacts on the current world. Right. Yeah, it's psychological impact on an individual. Yeah. From that thought on individual psychology, I'd like to chat about something I was confused by. There's a scene in this where it talks about how the empire gives the equivalent of a tax credit for people who have mixed race children. And there's some sort of implication within that that it will go a long way to homogenizing the empire if they have a bunch of mixed race children. Yeah, which I think is like a it's a weird assumption that that is what's going to like unite everyone. I think that is interesting of how they've chosen to quote unquote more organically unite everyone. And then at a certain point, it doesn't go far enough. And so then they have to use the iron fist of right having those incentives or again like building that council where you have to have representation from every single realm right and the lady chooses to have her council members be of mixed race and somebody questions it and says well wouldn't that make it weaker because they only half represent each of their realms and that is questioned 
by somebody else who says that perhaps they represent both cultures fully, which I think is really interesting. So it doesn't necessarily go the path of homogenizing the culture. It could go the path of just having more representation for each of the two cultures represented in the mixed race child. Yeah, and I think also interesting things about being mixed race is there's right all the different realms and everyone is mixing in slightly different ways. You can find kinships between those realms that are different depending on which places your backgrounds are from and the mixing of those two. And so it's almost like you're able to represent both, but in a unique way where you found different connections. You've read book A and book B and found the connections between those books, but someone else read book A and book C and there's like new connections that they're able to build between those. And that's the hypothesis that the lady has in building her council is to make those connections. But still keep out Songland. Yeah, yeah but she's still <laughs> still Duncan on Songland. Um, but the lady is also a, a character that is rebelling against her fate mm-hmm. as a woman who's not able to become an emperor, even though she is very clearly a natural leader, has a group of people that is fiercely loyal to her, including her daughter, who she hasn't really done much to earn that loyalty. That's sort of like a natural charisma the lady seems to have. It seems like she would be a very effective ruler in the mode that the empire seems to prefer, but her gender seems to prevent that from happening. And this is what she's rebelling against. That's like the animating force of this novel is the lady rebelling against that. Rebelling against it. And I think there's also something that's interesting when we get like the flashbacks of like what it was like for her as a child where she actually just wanted to support her brother, the crown prince who would be the emperor. Like she was like, hey, we could do this together. You're having a hard time building those connections basically that she was able to use her ray, which she didn't know potentially that women could have in order to start forming partnerships with other potential council members who were also children that they were all hanging out with, but he was unable to make any connections. And I think there is an interesting thing there in like that element of toxic masculinity of women doing emotional labor, being like, hey, like I can do all this for you in service of you. And then ultimately when you prove to be better at it and that people actually have stronger loyalty to you, that you actually like cut that aside, which again, is similar to Meghan Markle and Harry, as well as Princess Diana and both of their Australia tours. One of the turns of events for Diana with the rest of the royal family is the fact that they did a tour of Australia with Prince William. And so it's always very common that the royals will tour the Commonwealths um, every so often. And usually they don't bring their children. They leave their children at home. But she was like, hell no, I'm bringing my son on this tour. What are you talking about? I'm going to be away for like months. And then also it became very apparent that people were far more excited to see Diana than her husband, Charles. And it put it intention of like, oh, you married in. You're supposed to be lesser than us. Why are you more popular? You need to know your place. Which is like the sense that I got in that scene of like him being like, get out, take your fake counsel and leave when he hasn't been able to make one connection. He hasn't been able. It's like he's like the beast. <laughs> he just needs to love someone and be loved in return. That's good. Let's, let's talk about other connections to other stories that we saw here, because this book gets a lot of press for the way that it's able to meld a bunch of different mythologies together. And so like that, that idea of a Beauty and the Beast connection is, is an interesting one. Yeah. What When you were reading it, James, what were sort of the literary connections were you saying? So this is a really half-baked one, but it's something that was in my head for most of the time is a connection between this and Paradise Lost. The plotline of Paradise Lost is that God is a monarch. God is like the, the supreme leader of this like monarchy of heaven. 
and that Satan is this person that doesn't accept the power structures that exist and rebels against it. There's the line about better to live standing up than to serve on one's knees, and but it's something to that, that effect. And unable to defeat the monarch of heaven, Satan, he raised an army, he tried to fight against the monarch of heaven, it failed, and unable to defeat it, he then turns to manipulation and tries to like mess with the things that God loves, that being humans. And then, obviously, the result is that humans are going to betray God and that there's going to need to be a sacrifice of the greatest human that ever lived, and Jesus gets sent down. So I was seeing it a little bit here. Are you seeing where I'm going with this? Oh, I mean, the book ends where she's willing to sacrifice herself for the entire empire. Very Jesus-y. Yes, exactly. And the idea of, like, the lady being Satan and, like, trying to, like, wage a war essentially against the empire. But Satan, it's sort of assumed, is just going to replace one empire with another. That, like, he's the leader of his little pandemonium in hell. And so if he defeated God, he would just become another emperor. Obviously, Tari Sai has this perspective on power that's very different than that. And she's trying to overthrow the entire system of empire. Yeah, versus the lady, which is basically what you're saying with Satan, is like, I'm replacing it with an empire, and it's going to look identical, basically, but it's under me. Exactly. And... Yeah, the lady shares other characteristics with Satan. There's the super charismatic. There's like this council that she has that has people who are good at war, but also good at fraud and being manipulative. And so she's got this very similar group of advisors to to Satan in Paradise Lost. So I was thinking about this as I was reading. There's a scene that I don't think has to do with this, but it was so heavy handed, obvious in some ways. And then just like it failed to stand up to close reading for me. It's a scene where Tari Sai goes to the capital and... The counselors are debating whether or not to even let her participate in this game of the bachelorette (laughs) kind of thing that's going on here. And uh, they give her an apple and it gets slapped away by the historian and says, like, we're not going to poison the kid. But the idea that an apple showed up when I was already seeing these connections between the lady. Chef's kiss. I think it's really interesting bringing up that initial sort of test that Tarasai has where she comes to sort of like audition for the council and everyone is like, oh, like we shouldn't kill her. We should allow her to like join the group of children who could potentially become the council and meet the crown prince. And I think I just was really confused if she looks identical to the person <laughs> that you already threw out of the kingdom because you're like, this person is treasonous. Why are you letting her live? And then also, then we found out that like Dio also had known the entire time that she had been like sent to kill him. And he's like, it's okay. That's when I was like, Dio is a little too cinnamon roll. Right. right. Yeah, there's that scene (laughs) where Dio is like, no, I've known from the beginning that you were sent here to kill me. But I forgave you anyway, because I feel like I needed you because I like you a lot. It's like, oh, sweetie. (laughs) Yeah, I did feel a lot of those things in the beginning. I don't know if they like felt like plot holes, but I think it might have ultimately come down to the pacing of the book, which I think was probably the thing that I struggled with the most. There were a lot of things that were being set up. And obviously, like I think that it's going to take a bit longer to do world building, especially for fantasy novels that don't have the white supremacist luxury of basing themselves on medieval Europe. Like I think what she was trying to create is much more complex and what she has to build us into is much more complex. And so I do get that it needs to take more time, but I do not think we necessarily need to start at the very beginning of the story and go through every single step of her journey in the way that we did. It felt like a lot of exposition. And then the last hundred pages were amazing, but it was like, boom, 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 boom. 
and all the plot was happening there. I wish like she had started the book later in the journey versus like the very beginning. Yeah. I mean, as far as the structure of the book is concerned, there was like a bunch of little three-act structures that fed into this much larger arc. And so it almost appeared to me like there was three, maybe four different stories being told. And they, they all had an arc that sort of completed. And then you went to the next one and it, and it completed. It felt very uh, Star Wars in that way. <laughs> Although like Star Wars does to a certain extent start at the beginning with episode four, at the beginning of Luke's journey. Yeah. Or Harry Potter. Yeah. And it has its own little three-act structure. And then he gets there and it's another one. Yeah. With Harry Potter, I think because it was like multiple books and these were all separated, I think each of them had to have like the climax and then the denouement afterwards. And they were able to like build the context of the world over time through all of that versus it felt like there was just like a lot of exposition. And it was going on throughout the entire novel. Final 10 chapters, we were still learning new things about the world. And I also was like, not to always just bring it down to like editing. I mean, I would say the same thing about like Harry Potter, (laughs) The Deathly Hallows. Strong editing is important. And I feel like the world and the bigness of the world and the many realms that she was reflecting were potentially too big for like this size of book. It was just a lot of things to capture. And I'm already thinking like, how long is book two going to be if we have to see her win over a potential council member from every single one of the realms? Right, right. they're going to need to condense that a little bit. They're going to have to montage. Yeah, at least. But like, otherwise it's going to be like very Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And you're like, oh my God, can you just find them all? Right, right. Get to the fight with Voldemort. <laughs> if we have to do that 11 times, it's going to be pretty, pretty brutal. <laughs> I really liked what you were saying about her not pulling from medieval England and the things that are in our cultural consciousness from that. Because, you know, Tolkien or Game of Thrones, they all pull from a set of things that come preloaded. Like, I know what an elf is. They can introduce an elf into their stories, and I, I get it. It's already there, built out for me. You don't need to do exposition. But, like, for example, there's a storyteller high priest from the uh, Emperor's Council that has its roots in African storytelling traditions. Yeah, I think where I struggled with all of the, just there's so many of the realms and they're all clear allegories for countries in the world that it's just like, it's too much. I think when one of the characters came in and her name was Kathleen is kind of when I lost it. (laughs) (laughs) And to be fair, like my sister's name is Kathleen and I'm like very Irish Catholic on one side. So like that, it just has holds a little like weight for me. But I do think to a certain extent, while I love the vision of all of these different cultures like uniting, but still holding their own cultural history like close to their hearts, I really think the novel would have been better to select one or two versus being like, oh, there we go. There's there's Ireland. (laughs) There's Korea. Yeah. And its ambition is huge. It's trying to like flatten a hierarchy between all of these things. Totally. And like respect each of them because like so much of the novel is about keeping the stories and keeping the cultural traditions of each part while also finding a way to communally live together with respect and flattening like what things are held as more important than other things. And so you do need to have a lot to do that. But yeah, it, it was confusing. And I, I, as somebody that always struggles with fantasy books that have entirely new worlds, I found it particularly difficult to follow everything. The glossary was very important to me. I mean, and I, I bet there was like so much research involved in this book, but you're having to build a mythology for like all of these different realms, like every single one of them. And you can tell that they're fully fleshed out in her head. But that element of, like, when you read Les Miserables, there's an entire section where you're just like, okay, Victor Hugo, you just want to show me how much research you did on Waterloo. 
I mean, we can read this, but we didn't need this. <laughs> it's more important here than the plot line in Les Mis. Yeah, but... it's the movie dick sections on wailing. Exactly, like, exactly. Okay. <laughs> so she does tap into some elements of the real world that don't require any world building. So, like, she doesn't need to tell us a lot of things about Sanjeet because it's very clear he's... Sanjeet from India. Southeast Asian, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the issue I had with it is it pulled me out. I think it pulled me out because it felt like such a one-to-one and there were so many of them. It felt like a little bit like when J.K. Rowling was like, there's lots of different magic schools and this one is based on Native American traditions and this one is blah, 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 blah. And you're like, I get where you're trying to go. And just like the book that we just read too, the international school, people of like lots of backgrounds. And the problem is like, even if it's the most well-intentioned thing, you've done a lot of research because you cannot reflect all 12 equally, they're going to feel thin. And to a certain extent, even if you don't mean for it to sound like a stereotype, it's going to come across that way a little bit because you just don't have enough space to develop it fully. Right. And the ones that are developed in Harry Potter are just like France and Germany. (laughs) And then they don't need too much exposition. All right. Is it the time where we make predictions for the second book? Yes. I mean, the second book is she's going to get her counsel. Everyone's going to love her. She's going to go to the underworld and she's going to make it out alive. And then she and Sanjeet are going to have a beautiful romantic kiss. Right. We haven't even talked about the the love triangle. I actually, I know that you love a good love triangle. I do. I appreciated this one and how it presented itself as though there were going to be a love triangle. And then, God bless him, Dio, the man too good for this world, just goes, oh yeah, it's cool. Like, you can can love each other. Like, he's just, he backs out of it without a fight at all. Yeah, it was great to have asexual representation. Well, it's also... To a certain extent, like, oh, God, like having to live your destiny. I do feel this for royals is like, oh, like you have to like be in some sort of heterosexual sexual relationship in order to carry on the family name. But thankfully, Tari Sai and Sanjeet are totally into each other and totally banged at the end of the book. Yeah. So they're going to be yeah. fine. She can carry the family line on. Right. And that's another good example of people fighting against their destiny. Like it's it's Dio's destiny to have some sort of heterosexual relationship that's going to lead to genetic reproduction where he passes on the ray. He's not really into yeah. that. Even like when she takes him under like the command compulsion outside, he's like talking and like rambling. He's just like, I knew that this was probably going to have to happen. And it's, 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 it's okay. But I don't really like have sexual feelings towards other people. Oh, precious cinnamon roll. So at the end, back to book two. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you think is going to happen? How many books is she planning on this? Do you know? I think on Amazon it said this was one of two. So I think it's two books. Okay. Then a lot of things need to happen. Yes. She needs to get the council. She needs to go to the underworld. And she needs to make it through that challenge and come out the other way and then redeem her whole culture and create something that gives our culture a path out of empire and out of colonialism, which seems like a really big task. This is going to be like an 800-page book to solve all those things. I'm also not sure how she's going to, like, overthrow the whole system. And maybe that's because I look at our own system and our real world. I'm like, I don't know how to overthrow this. But I do worry because I I think that the book has done a really good job of showing complexity and complex thought in the structures that like whatever solution you make to the other side of how you think about the Arid Empire, how you think of Songland, how you think of this potential, I don't know if the obligation to the underworld will continue or it will just like wait until the next renewal where another ray bearer will have to sacrifice themselves. But I am curious, like how do you get out of these structures, which feel like very hard and defined? 
I feel like the most important thing that has to happen here, she needs to pick her counsel. And we know that she's going to be quick about it, but she also needs to be discerning about it. And I feel like one of the things she's going to have to be discerning about is these council members are going to have power as people who she extends her ray to. And they're also going to have to be people who are okay with taking that privilege and that power and sacrificing it and giving it up. Because so much of Tari Sai's storyline so far has been about questioning the idea of empire in general um, and questioning the idea of one person or, or a group of people having power over others. And so if she's going to be able to take down that perception or that framework of empire and centralized power, she's going to have to have a very special counsel. Yes. And I feel like they set up how difficult that's going to be at the, at the very end. She's like, oh, I'm going to have to like go around and like get adults, get full fledged adults to like agree to follow me. And knowing that the way that we're going to be setting up is like a, a sense of sacrifice and that what a difficult task that is going to be. It would be so easy since they all just love each other. They could just share the same council. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess it can't work that way. I think in that idea that you're talking about of like her dedication to like overthrowing the structures when she went to Songland and she heard the prophecy and she had to have the right blood to hear the prophecy is I do wonder what we're going to be doing with these like monarch structures um, and whether or not that is something that we are going to keep moving forward or if that is something that she wants to like overthrow everything. Right, because some of it is baked in, right? Like the idea of a ray bearer who can send out these beams of love, they're baked into the magical structure. The idea that these kids need to be sacrificed, it's like it seems to be baked into the world. And so I wonder if there's a way for them to overthrow these things that seem baked in. And I don't know. One one more thing about Dio being adorable is how he prematurely casts off his little love beams oh, all the time. Yes. He meets somebody, he throws out a love beam. He doesn't even think about it. He's like, he's like, do you love me? And they're like, I've literally just met you. Stop being so thirsty. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's so precious. I I will be excited to have more of him. I hope he doesn't die. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've ever liked a innocent archetype like that more than him. Like, they're always there just to be killed. And he's not there just to be killed. He's there to just, like, be adorable. Yeah, knock on wood. I hope he's not here to be killed. Oh, God. He's probably going to be killed. Yeah, I think if there wasn't as much complexity or dark brooding characters around the world, I might get, like, a little bit annoyed with his innocence. But I think that he's, like, a welcome change of pace. I think to a certain point, like in the very beginning, I struggled of like, oh, why does she feel so dedicated to him? And is it just like the magicalness of like, oh, they both like sense each other's ray? But I think as the time went on, it was just like, oh, no, no, no. Everything is like super screwed up in this world. Everyone has like all of their demons. She has her own. She's literally taking away demons from other people so they can sleep. And to have something pure and innocent in the world and the ability to protect it and keep that goodness yeah. totally makes sense. Yeah, and that's that is also a really interesting thing about this is is that the place of power is kind. It makes the whole issue of empire more complicated because the center of this empire is kind and so it's not the individual that is the problem, it's the like system of oppression that is the problem. Because you know, if you were to hand pick somebody to be an emperor, Dio with his just like love everybody, forgive everybody, assume good intent would be your man but it's not him that's the problem it's just the idea that you need to have this homogenizing center of command that you know essentially sacrifices kids in songland but beyond that 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I think the thing is you can't guarantee what kind of leaders will come out with the Ray. It's like the same thing of when companies are like, oh, well, the CEO really cares about you. You don't need to unionize. You have enough compensation and benefits. And there are some situations where that is absolutely true. The way that you're able to work is much faster without a union if you feel respected. But that's if you have leadership that you believe in and that they actually do care. And if you don't, you need to create structures in place so that you're preventing any abuse of power, which like clearly the now RIP emperor <laughs> um, was like wildly misusing. Well, I think we've done it. I think we've done it for this book. You want to talk about what we'll do next? Yeah, I feel like after these two books, not that I don't love talking about like racial structures in the United States and how to properly build up and advocate for writers of color, especially. I think maybe we could do something a little bit lighter Maybe something that's more like rom-commy, since I didn't get my love triangle fix here. I saw a book called Tweet Cute come up on Shut the Goodreads Awards last year. Oh my god. What do you think about that? Um, that sounds amazing. <laughs> Wait, let me look it up. Okay, so on Goodreads, a fresh, irresistible rom-com from debut author Emma Lord about the chances we take, the paths life can lead us on, and how love can be found in the opposite place you expected. Oh, this sounds adorable. Okay, let's totally do it. Okay, we'll see you next month to discuss Tweet Cute. See you next month. Literary Connections is hosted by Melissa Hansen, James Earl, and we are produced, mixed, and organized, and generally everything else by Kimberly Johnson. Bye! Ray Bearer. Will there be a bear at our wedding?